I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on President's Day 2024. And I see great reason to celebrate American, well, not the current one, but other American presidents, absolutely. But you're not going to believe, you are not going to believe what a bunch of academics have said in a poll. These are people who are supposedly knowledgeable about presidents and American history. And the rankings they have handed out are absolutely lunatic. Now, most of the people, that you're going to see put this story up. Television, uh, newspapers, the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, and, uh, and radio as well. You're going to see them not explain who is it that's saying that Donald Trump is the worst president in American history, that Abraham Lincoln is the best president. Actually, I'd put him number two to Washington for a bunch of reasons I could explain. But that Joe Biden somehow comes in at number 14, just ahead of Ronald Reagan, the best president of the 20th century? You've got to be kidding me. In any case, welcome to the program. Glad to have your calls because we call this the best conversation in talk journalism. And you're welcome to join at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, and we have loved naysayers on this program for more than a quarter of a century, if you disagree with something I've said, a position I take on a policy issue or whatever, you are welcome to join us. In fact, you're more than welcome. You're going to go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And of course, you can always vote in our poll on X, used to be called the Twitter poll. Should non-citizens be in charge of running American elections? I know it sounds like a crazy question, so we have to go to a crazy place, and that would be San Francisco. San Francisco has an elections commission for the city by the bay, as they call it, uh, de depending on your point of view, Sodom by the bay, whatever you want to call it. They have now put Kelly Wong on the San Francisco Elections Commission. Kelly Wong is not an American citizen. Kelly Wong is not eligible to vote in American elections. She is a citizen of communist China. She came here from Hong Kong. Hong Kong belongs to China. I can understand why she'd want to flee from communist China. I can't understand why Kelly Wong would spend five years in this country and not want to be an American citizen. And do you know what she says? She wants to make sure through her new post as a member of San Francisco's Elections Commission, she wants to make sure that non-citizens, which also include illegal aliens, have the right to vote in American elections. Now, I think that's a lunatic idea. She says she supports the right of people who are in America to be able to vote without any regard to whether or not they're here legally or not, whether they become citizens or not. And the very fact she's been here five years and has not yet become a citizen might tell you her point of view toward being a citizen. So she thinks that if you're here and you're affected by the elections, and you are, uh, that you should be able to vote in that question. I disagree. 
I go back to the 15th Amendment to America's Constitution, which says the right to citizens to be able to vote shall be protected and shall not be interfered with uh, by the federal or the state government. Yeah, non-citizens, not so much. So should a non-citizen be in charge of running elections? I'd say no to that. You can vote any way you like. You'll find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show, uh, and you'll also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I join, and you should too. Go to amac.us to join or 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. But let me tell you about this poll and then I'll get to your calls. The poll was done of almost 150 academics. Now that immediately should send up the warning signal to say, they're interviewing people who make their living at American colleges. Now, there are a few decent colleges in America. Hillsdale happens to be one of them. I have no other connection to Hillsdale other than that I admire that Michigan college from a distance. That college has done a fantastic job, and it doesn't take one single dime of federal money. And when they came in in the 70s and told Hillsdale, hey, you got to start granting uh, college degrees to women and black people, they said, we've been doing that since before the Civil War. Don't tell us what to do. We're already doing the right thing. It took you another 150 years, America, to figure out how to do the right thing. So that's one of the reasons I admire Hillsdale from a distance. But this poll, it puts Donald Trump dead last at number 45. It puts James Buchanan at 44, Andrew Johnson at 43, Franklin Pierce at 42, and William Henry Harrison, those last four, the last three, uh, very forgettable presidents at 41 and ranks President Donald Trump, the best president of the 21st century so far, because, well, what have we had? We've had Obama and we've had uh, Trump and we've had Biden. Okay, Obama, nothing to write home about. Uh, Joe Biden, an unqualified disaster of a president. And they put him at number 14 on the list ahead of Ronald Reagan. And then they put Obama at number seven. I've asked people over the years, even, I mean, most people, when they look back, you know, they tend to look at people a little bit more charitably. At the time, for example, that Harry Truman, a Democrat, was president of the United States, Harry Truman was not very well spoken of. I mean, people didn't like the guy. Uh, historically, people tend to look back and say, oh, Harry Truman, that's great. The buck stops here and all that stuff. Dropping the atom bomb, all oh, that's all good, all good. But even looking backward, I've asked people, what exactly did Barack Obama get done that made your life better? Because if you ask me that same question about Donald Trump, I can give you at least a dozen different things that he did and got done. And Barack Obama, he gave us Obamacare, which was another unqualified disaster. And in a lot of ways, he's given us Joe Biden. And in fact, Joe Biden, since he doesn't know what day it is most days, is probably having the shots called for him by Barack Obama and Obama's former staff, which is now mostly Joe Biden's staff. So suggesting that Obama is number seven and Obama and uh, Biden comes in at number 14, I think that's absolutely crazy. To your calls now at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to Pinball. Hey, Pinball, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, hello, Lars. Good afternoon, and thank you, and happy President's Day. Happy and, uh, President's Day back at you. 
I think the greatest politician who never was president was Ben Franklin, but that uh, agreed. Never a politician, but that uh, best American. Who oh, never, I, I think he, I think Franklin, having read a lot of the history about him, he was very much a politician. He just didn't run for elective office. Thank you. Okay, I was trying to clarify. But anyways, all these people for reparations. Okay, I came up with what I think could be a solution. What is it? Mostly is the Democratic Party. Now, yeah. if uh, I'm all for reparations, as long as every penny comes out of the Democrats' own pocket. And if you want to contribute to it, you go right ahead. But they will not get one bit of my Marine Corps money, Ben. Thank you for your service, Ben and I like the idea. Although Democrats, how do they get money? They usually have their hand in somebody else's pocket. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's President's Day, and even on President's Day, we get a chance to talk to my friend Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma State School Superintendent and former U.S. history teacher. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great. Happy President's Day. You know, I just I put out a video earlier today. I was looking at the uh, study of all these... Uh, oh. Ivy League historians on great presidents, and, you know, uh, somehow, I'm shocked, I know you are, Lars, somehow they had Joe Biden and Barack Obama in front of President Reagan. Just to show you the left-wing bias of higher ed, the absurdity, Joe Biden's a better president than Ronald Reagan, you give me a break. Like, I can't believe they even put that study out with a straight face. You know what, Ryan, I've been going off on that all day today because it makes me angry. The idea that and and what I do with my callers is every once in a while I'll get somebody who's a fan of Biden. I go, what has he done? Name me one thing he's done that has benefited you. And they can't. And I said, now try it on me with Trump. Tell, tell I'll give you a dozen things that benefited broad sweeps of the American population uh, during his time in office. Joe Biden has done things to the detriment of American citizens. And yet, as you point out, they rank him 14. They have Obama at seven and they have Ronald Reagan at 15. And And yet I point out to people, this is coming from academics who teach at American universities, which unfortunately are almost exclusively toxic liberal environments. So I guess it's what you'd expect from it. It'd be like saying, what's the DNC's list of best presidents? Exactly. And I, I'm even going to connect it to this as well. So that's higher ed. Those historians are the ones that are quoted and cited in every history book that your kids are reading in K-12 education. And, and to show you how to step they are, so Donald Trump is rated in there as the worst president in American history. Yep. Ronald Reagan is below Biden and Obama. So I guess the economy, does that not matter when you're anchor president? I guess foreign policy doesn't matter when you're – I mean, you just think about the absurdity of someone who claims to be an academic who is writing your, your, your children's history books that they're reading in junior high and high school making the claim – that Joe Biden's better president than Ronald Reagan, but this is what we see, the ideological bent 
of presenting these facts. And so on President's Day, I love that you've been highlighting this today, Laura. It's, it's, it's absolutely telling that this study would come out, which just exposes this is not a, a, an academic um, PhD class that cares one bit about facts. It is purely to push an agenda. And I want your kids to believe every conservative president's a failure, every left-wing president's the greatest of all time, and that's what your kids are being bombarded with as they try to navigate um, the, the, their school uh, career. Now, Ryan, I'm talking to Ryan Walters, who's Oklahoma State School Superintendent and a former history teacher, so far be it from me to, to contradict you. But I want to know your take on this, because I've been asked by several people, well, this survey of all these academic types has put Lincoln at the top, actually, I'd, and, and Washington number two. I'd have reversed that and put Washington number one, not because he was first, but uh, for concrete reasons. And I want to know your history teacher you know, perspective on this. I said Washington was America's greatest president because to win the freedom of this country and allow us to have a country with a constitution, with God-given, not king-given rights, we had to win that war. That's number one. But number two, there was a popular, there was popular support to have a king. Having just escaped a king, there were a lot of Americans who said, hey, let's have a king like everybody else on the planet. And Washington strenuously resisted that and said, no, uh, we're not going to have a king. We're going to have a president. And the executive in America in the Constitution is a relatively weak executive. The president can't spend a dime without Congress. He can't issue court edicts. He can't do all those things. He has certain powers, and it's a powerful office, but a whole lot less powerful than it might have been. And Washington believed in that. And the third thing I liked about Washington was he was prouder of being a farmer, and he would tell people so. And he wanted to spend most of his time at his farm in Virginia, you know, where they were actually working and producing things, catching, I don't know, a million pounds of fish a year uh, because they fished out of the river. Uh, they, they produced a lot on his farm. He was proud of that, and I would argue prouder in history than he was of being president. Those are powerful things. Now, I'd still put Lincoln number two because of the incredible things he did to hold the country together. But I have to put Washington first. Do you think I'm wrong? I don't think you're wrong. Um, Lars, I, I, this was one of my favorite activities. At the end of the year when I taught U.S. history, I would have the kids rank the presidents, top five, bottom five, and they'd have to come out and defend their ranking. And, and one of the things that I always would talk to kids about is the thing about Washington is there was no precedent. You know, he literally had to navigate the whims of an, of an electorate, of, a, of, a, of a, a group of Americans that would have loved for him to stay in power, for him to, frankly, you know, because of his um, moral view, because of his standing as a general, because of his standing as a citizen, there are a lot of people that were willing to give him uh, unprecedented, you know, power in America, which would have been yeah. kind of the equivalent to our European allies. But he was able to stand the test of time. Now, the thing about Lincoln, Lincoln was able to have that precedent, right? He was able to, it was preservation for Lincoln. It was a Look, I am trying to embed what the Declaration was meant to be in America. I'm trying to keep this incredible country together. Now, I will tell you, so I, I'm not going to disagree with the ranking there, one and two. Oh, feel free I to. You, I mean, I, if you think I'm out of line, I'd be happy to be corrected by a history teacher. Not, not one of those well, from, the, from the survey, but, <laughs> but you. Well, I will tell you this. I draw, though, a lot of, um, uh, you know, support. You know, I love 
Truman had this great quote about when he struggled to find a good, you know, a good um, a mentor or good advisor. He would go to history and he would just read and he said, you know, I would sit down with these great figures from history and study them and they would be my advisors. And, you know, and, I, and I've, I've been very drawn to Lincoln because Lincoln was a guy, the, the country was divided. It was in the midst of a civil war. Uh, he was told by many people to just, you know, there comes a point where you just give over to it. You just end this war, be done with it. You know, maybe America will never be one. And he fought back against that. And so in today's time, I love reading about Lincoln. I love doing in-depth studies on him because I feel there's a lot of equivalences to be drawn to today and where the country is truly divided. There is a right side of history and conservatives have that. And we have to win this war. And there's many people, even on our own side, Lars, that say, can't we just, you know, compromise and appease the left and just live it? And I'm going, no, you, you cannot appease the things they stand for. And so I, I do. I, I love the study of Washington and Lincoln. And I particularly love Lincoln right now because you see a guy who believes, look, hey, I'm not here worried about the moment. I, I want history to look back on me and God to look back on me and my positions to be the ones that were best for the country. You know, it's funny, Ryan, because just last week I had a caller and he said, look, I think we're too polarized. We need to find a common ground. And he says, especially on the big stuff. And I said, OK, can you give me some examples? Because I said, OK, let's take abortion. That's the go to, you know, as, as a polarizing issue. Where's the halfway point? You know, we're killing a million kids a year. How about half a million? You know, and no, oh, no, let's not. I said, OK, let's do the border. We're letting in 10,000 people a day. How about 5,000, like James Langford's bill? I said, on any of the really big, important issues, where's the compromise point? I mean, you say you have to compromise. Okay, we'll get half a loaf. I don't know of any of those that would, that would be satisfying with half a loaf for either side. And yet you, you constantly have people wanting to talk about it in theory and say, in theory, we can find a point of compromise on Ukraine. Oh, so we'll send them 30 billion instead of 60 billion. I mean, they, 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 their theory fails to work when you act where the rubber meets the road. You know, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quote. You know, frankly, one of the top five presidents of all time, uh, not according to that study, but just anybody with a look at history would put him top five. Ronald Reagan, who said, let's not paint with, um, uh, you know, let's not paint, uh, let's paint with bold colors, not pale pastels. And the reality is, is the positions conservative, conservatives hold are the correct ones on those major issues. We have to be able to lead. We have to get into office and do the things that we say that we will. We have to pose the solutions that the electorate has been put. The electorate hasn't spoken more clearly about a single issue than abortion in the border. Absolutely right. Ryan Walters. Ryan, thanks so very much from Oklahoma. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. political climate. He's the steamroller. This 
is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Couple of little updates. Number one, Customs and Border Protection has released new data that shows the number of illegal aliens coming into America on our northern border last year topped more than 12,000. That is a spike of 240% from the year before. 70% of those illegal crossings took place around the sector called the Swanton Sector. It's about 295 miles long. It includes upstate New York, New Hampshire, and Vermont. The U.S.-Canadian border is almost three times as long as the border with Mexico. So, We're seeing more people who are apparently deciding the way in is not through the southern border. It's through our northern border. That could continue to grow as well. We have to keep an eye on it. Number two, that we now find out, and I've been following this a bit, James Biden has been involved in a bunch of political or business enterprises, but he's involved his brother Joe. Well, he got his then vice president brother Joe to promote a failing health care company called AmeriCorps. Using his brother's influence, uh, James was able to secure deals in drug rehab, lab testing, cancer treatment, ultimately culminating in AmeriCorps' bankruptcy and legal turmoil, although it sounds like James Biden made out like a bandit. In 2017, Biden, with no previous hospital administration experience at all, went to his brother, Joe, used his brother Joe's status with the federal government to pursue ventures with AmeriCorps. Financial woes caused the company to collapse, leaving behind unpaid bills and compromised patient care. Federal investigators are still looking into it, but like most investigations involving the Biden crime family, those investigations never seem to actually produce indictments or action, or only for people outside the Biden crime family. I mean, obvious, obviously, some of Hunter Biden's associates have ended up in big trouble, but not Hunter, and not Joe, and not James. Let's go first to Gene in Nevada. And if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Gene, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? Uh, well, I have Biden on my mind, but I also want to say at the outset that after an exhaustive search to assess presidents, they chose the 14 most liberal universities in America to make those choices. Isn't that yes, something? Yes, they did. But it, yeah. a, a, apart from that, you know, uh, Biden is at it again. He's reversing shield on suddenly on electric cars. Not um, much. Was, Where did you yeah. uh, now? Hold on. What are you referring to? What action has he taken to reverse course? Be careful about how you use. I like words. And they mean something. Joe Biden right now is driving to get rid of automobiles powered by IC, internal combustion engines, and replace them all with EV, electric vehicles. Where do you see him reversing course? Well, let me recharacterize. Uh, the, uh, the thing that I saw was he's delaying the pressure to implement electric cars temporarily. But this is part of, a, a part of this president's pattern. Every policy failure that he has, he doesn't reverse field, field because the policy is an abject, uh, uh, complete failure. He only reverses policy, whether it's uh, raiding the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because um, their hair caught on fire with the ten, nine and ten dollar gallon gas that was going to erupt in this country. He suddenly has some uh, rudimentary interest in securing the border. 
because the political the political situation just doesn't look very good for him. And in, and he's behind in the polls in Michigan now, really, uh, with respect to, to, to President Trump, uh, because of his uh, because of his agenda, his oppressive agenda on 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 uh, on, on and, and implementing electric vehicles. So suddenly he's starting to pull back on that. But there's just a definite definite pattern. Well, Okay, but but Gene, can I tell you, it's when when your plans run into reality is what I think has happened. Because Biden was uh, Biden bragged, and I'll I'll cite his State of the Union address a couple of years ago, in which he said, Mm -hmm. "In ten years, we won't even need oil anymore." Which is, you know, even if you weren't using it for transportation, there are a lot of other things you do need it for. But he said that. And he thought, well, we're going to transition by 2035 or so. We're going to transition to EVs. And then you have to look at what I've been trying to document on this show, that in the last four months or so, you've seen America's car company come to the realization, we're going to lose our shirts. We're going to go out of business altogether if we continue down this path. And the proof is I've heard different numbers but the best numbers I've found, because I was using 60,000 because I got that from a, a member of Congress, but 30 may be the honest number. If you're making cars and on every EV you make, Ford Motor Company, you lose 30 some thousand dollars. How do you, how do you continue down that path? Ford Motor Company, before you count the EVs, made five billion dollars last year. Now people say, well, they, they, they were making out like crazy. No. They, they did a hundred, I think it was 170 billion in gross business and they made five billion. So they made a tiny percentage of their gross. That's before you count the EVs. Once you put the EVs onto the spreadsheet, Ford Motor Company came up with no profits whatsoever. Now, Gene, if you're one of those uh, people who own stock, say you're a pension plan that owns stock in Ford Motor Company and they're losing their shirt on EVs. And they wipe, they managed to take a healthy profit they made on gasoline and diesel rigs, and they lose the entire amount on electric vehicles. How interested in you, are you in owning their stock? Probably not. Probably, uh, probably not. I, I think the point that I'm trying to make, Lars, is this with this president, is he only backpedals on policy failure when there's political peril to him. Now, yes. political peril to him in Michigan. I mean, the, the, the president of the United Auto Workers may be endorsing his, his, uh, his re-election. Which but I don't is think crazy. it's being endorsed by the membership itself. I think they see economic peril for themselves uh, with, with, with these policies. And that is the only time that this president temporizes his policy. You know, he had to and you're right people. about that. No, you're absolutely right. But, Gene, do you understand that EVs are a disaster for every auto worker in America? And why? Because... The EVs take about 40% as much labor, human labor, to assemble as an internal combustion car. Even though the EVs end up costing more money, they, they take fewer people to put them together. And it's because of what goes into them and how it goes in and all that. So if, if you're a UAW member and you say, my union is, is, is endorsing Joe Biden, they're going to give him a bunch of money and, and the endorsement. How in the world, what are you doing when you say, I'm 35 years old, I'm with a bunch of other auto workers, and I realize that six out of every 10 of my coworkers are going to be unemployed in an EV future. And if the EV future is coming, say, in the next five years, so by the time that kid reaches 40, six out of 10 of the jobs that he's pursued, you know, as, as his career, 
are going to be gone? Where does that leave him? Well, it leaves him as expendable, and that's been the that's been the narrative of this uh, agenda that was uh, uh, that it came in this election uh, with uh, with Biden on the Green New Deal and a lot of other issues. Uh, is that uh, that the elites who call the shots in that White House seem to think that uh, uh, blue collar America is expendable to gain their overarching goal of, of uh, their Green New Deal and their, and their climate goals and whatever whatever you wish to ascribe. But, well, uh, let me tell you someplace you know, they are forging ahead. Just this week came word that they're about to finalize tailpipe emission standards, which that phrase probably makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over. But, Gene, think why that's so important. Do you know that people say that incandescent light bulbs have been made illegal in America? And that is not true. What they've said is you can have any incandescent bulb you want as long as it meets certain standards, a certain amount of light out for a certain amount of power in. The problem is there isn't an incandescent bulb in the world that meets those standards. So the Biden administration could brag, we didn't ban it, we just set new standards. That's what they're gonna do with gasoline-powered cars. That is the end of gas-powered cars, and they're still pursuing that at the White city last week. I told you I had a number of uh, takes on that. Uh, the shooting that wounded more than 20 people. One man ended up dead uh, during the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade in Kansas City, Missouri last week. Was it an isolated situation or a symptom of a much larger problem that's been plaguing our cities? I thought I'd test that notion on Dr. Curry Myers, who's a criminologist, former sheriff, and former state trooper. Doctor, welcome back. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Lars. So, uh, you know, you, you get different takes from different people. The mayor of Kansas City was out complaining uh, over the weekend that uh, the governor of the state had uh, had called the young men involved in this dispute that ended up in gunfire. So they're criminals. And he referred to them as thugs. And he was making all the attention on that. But it sounds like we got the same problem there that we have in a lot of other big American cities where there's a lot of violence. It's not gun violence. It's people violence. And the cities don't want to take it seriously to the point where two thugs get into a dispute in a, an event that was going on where there were 800 police present and they still decided to try and settle it with pistols. So it sounds like a problem that fits right in with the urban landscape around America. Am I wrong? No, you're spot on. And in, in fact, uh, the problem with every urban community in America, and like you said, it's not gun control, but once again, people focus on gun control or not people, but usually progressives focus on gun control. And quite frankly, it's the wilding of America. I refer to it as the advent of feral man uh, due to the lack of faith, family and formation, especially in our children's lives. And we become a country of enablers where everyone's a victim. No one's held accountable for their actions. And the Kansas City mayor, I live in the Kansas City area on the Kansas side, and the mayor of Kansas City is definitely woke, and he is afraid to talk about the most important things, which is Kansas City, Missouri, is in the top 25 of most violent cities in America every year that they put out information. Um, and, you know, you couple that with the police defund movement, 
uh, and the lack of officers on the street. You have a perfect storm of criminality. And quite frankly, Lars, a lot of people may not realize this, but there are, in fact, no-go zones in every city in America that you should not go. And these are these, not the Muslim no-go zones that we hear about in foreign capitals, but no-go uh, a number of years ago when I went back to Washington, D.C. to do the radio show from some broadcast studios. I asked the guys in the studio, you know, when I was done that night, because I finish up 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, I'd say, uh, where, I, where should I go grab some dinner? They said, go this way or that way. And I can't remember which direction it was, but there were neighborhoods within walking distance of this, of the NBC, CBS studios that were, they said, just don't go there. And I said, really, that bad? And they said, oh, yeah, don't don't go there. You will get mugged. You will get robbed. You might get killed. And it's that bad. And I said, this is in our nation's capital within walking distance of both the Congress and the White House and the Washington Monument. Don't go to those neighborhoods. And they they weren't some far flung neighborhood. They were they were right there. Yeah, Washington D.C. in particular. I mean, it's 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 chaos in Washington D.C. But if you go back to Kansas City, St. Louis, also these are urban cities. But I wouldn't. They're not New York City. They're not Chicago. They're not L.A. Kansas City, Missouri has a, a little bit less than four hundred thousand uh, citizens. St. Louis is similar, but every year they're in the top twenty-five. And it's because they are led by progressives. I've said this before, uh, about 40% of the homicides in America today occurs in 1% of the counties. And all those counties that that 40% happens is are progressive counties. And in particular, the Kansas City case, you had, of course, 800 officers uh, there. There was probably close to a million people that were celebrating the chief's victory. Um, and uh, and the narrative didn't fit. The, the the governor of Missouri is a former sheriff. He calls it likes it like it is. They were yep. thugs. Thugs thugs try to kill people. And the mayor again is in a position where he doesn't want to actually speak the truth. And what we're going to find out is these these were juveniles. And they were uh, no. prim- primarily black probably gang-related, and we're probably going to see more than just the two involved in this incident, but it seems like it's a slow roll of information that comes out when it doesn't meet the narrative. And by the way, one of the things I've noticed popping up, not only at schools, but in enforcement in general, is there are people who complain and say, well, when you arrest people for crimes, you're arresting too many black and brown people. And and I say, well, but what if they're committing the majority of the crime? You also address a lot of men. And I always point out that 90 percent of the prison population is men. That's not because of anti-male bias of the courts or the cops or anybody else. It's because men commit more crimes than women do. And if you say, but when you say black Americans commit a disproportionate share of crime, I say, well, it's statistically accurate. And and they say, oh, but we can't say that, and we can't act on that. If we arrest too many people of color, then some liberal group's going to tag us and say, you see, you know, Kansas City must be a racist police force because they're arresting a lot of black men. Well, black men are responsible for 50% of the homicides in America, and they're only 6.5% of the population. And as I know the numbers, they're responsible for more than 50% of the armed robberies even being only 6.5% of the population. So 
if a small part of the population is committing a disproportionate share of crime, should it matter what color they are? Just arrest them and convict them and throw them in prison. Well, the whole purpose of evidence-based police, and your numbers are exact. In fact, in, fact, in some areas, they're higher than that, uh, where it could be close. I to use conservative numbers, Doctor. Yeah, I'm, so I, I always go for the lower one because then I can then I don't get into a debate. Was it sixty-one percent or sixty-two? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but you're right, and and once again, we're getting to the point where we can't talk about these things, Lars. The, here, a lot of people may not realize this, but crime actually is underreported uh, or not reported by most victims. Uh, and the, and sometimes the criminals that commit the act uh, are not being talked about with law enforcement and the media because it doesn't fit in the, uh, the narrative and it makes uh, the city look bad or what they think looks bad. So, uh, and the media hides and purposely limits information out in the public. The last five uh, mass shooters that have occurred, not including Kansas City, but I'm talking about individual mass shooters targeting something specific, the last five have had one thing in common. Transgender. That's transgenderism. Yep. And you can't talk yeah, about that either. Dr. Myers, I think talk. you're you're all, and by the way, my one last favorite number of all those black murders committed by black Americans, 90 percent of their victims were black. So if you want to say black lives matter, the victims lives matter a whole matter, a whole lot more than the criminals. The Lars Larson Show. the greatest joy. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize. For being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Now, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day. I got to start you out with this. Should the mayor of a city where something really terrible happened, like Kansas City, Missouri last week, where one man was shot dead, 20 and then some were wounded, 11 of those were children. When something like that happens, should the Democrat mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, should he be concerned about what terms we use to describe the thugs who did the deed? I would say no to that. I think you could tell that by implication. But here it is. Democrat Mayor Quentin Lucas has condemned his Republican governor's description of the Kansas City parade shooting suspects, arguing that calling them thugs is a racial dog whistle. After the shooting, and as I mentioned, one man killed, 20 and then some wounded, 11 children went off to the hospital with wounds, and the governor, Mike Parson, who's a Republican, I have no reason to disagree with him, we can't let thugs and criminals take over and ruin what happened. Is thug a disparaging term? Absolutely. Is it a racist term? Are you kidding me? 
I mean, that's this. This is an argument that I've heard on this program for literally decades that thug somehow only applies to black criminal suspects. It does not. I use it interchangeable. Uh, in- interchangeably, as far as I'm concerned, a thug is any person. Now, there aren't too many female thugs. It generally applies to men. But a thug is any person who acts outside the law, so they're doing something criminal, and they're usually doing something violent to get the title of thug. And I apply it to white people. I apply it to black people. I've applied it to Asian criminals. I see no problem with the term at all. And yet the mayor of Kansas City says, oh, calling them thugs is a racial dog whistle. And he correctly says, as near as we can tell, because the two suspects arrested and charged or will be charged in the Kansas City incident are both juveniles. It also appears that they are they are black suspects as well. Now, why is that significant? It's significant only because of this couple of things. Number one. Because black Americans, whether you like it or not, are disproportionately involved in violent crime, in murders, in armed robbery, in assaults and rapes. They are disproportionately involved. Six and a half percent of the population, that's black men in America. Six and a half percent. Fifty percent of the murders. Close to 60 percent of the armed robberies. And a disproportionately high percentage of rapes. Now. You say, we don't like those numbers because they don't match with our liberal progressive view of the world, that everything should be equal. Well, it's everything should be equal until you get to, well, we should hand out government grants and we should hand them out based on race and religion, or not religion, but race and gender and things like that. But I want you to listen to what the mayor of Kansas City, Quentin Lucas, had to say so you know exactly what he meant. I have respect for the governor. Uh, we get along well. I, I disagree strongly with uh, how he would describe that situation. I, I certainly do think this was criminal activity. It was lawlessness, and I think that uh, that's troubling. But thugs is a dog whistle. Now, hold on. I want to mention one of the things that he said in that soundbite, and that is this. Why, this is certainly criminal activity. You think? I mean, I don't know how smart Quentin Lucas is. But when when the mayor of a major American city says, yeah, 20 people got shot, 11 of them were children, one man died, yes, that's certainly criminal activity. Thank you very much, Captain Obvious, because the rest of us couldn't tell until you properly labeled it as criminal activity. Let's get Let's get serious about what's going on in America right now. We have a violent crime problem, and that violence is committed by people. And yes, there are people of every skin color, every religion, every race, every national origin. Absolutely. And most of the media and a bunch of the politicians don't want to call it for what it is. It is people violence, not gun violence or knife violence or vehicle violence. Until we start calling it by the right names, I know that some of you are going to say, well, Lars, what difference does it make what you call it? I can tell you what difference it makes. When you start deciding that the crime was actually gun violence and you focus on the guns, well, I'd focus on the guns, too, just a little bit differently than your average progressive. Because the the <laughs> and we run this this little uh, liner that runs on the show. You occasionally hear it when you say you want to solve gun violence. You know, you do it, do it, do it. You want to solve drunk driving? 
outlaw sober drivers. If you outlaw sober drivers, that'll stop drunk driving. And you say, Lars, that's stupid. I said, yes. And outlawing the law-abiding citizen from buying a gun, no matter what color he is, is makes about as much sense that you're somehow going to go after the people who are committing crimes with guns by banning law-abiding citizens from owning guns. Does that make any sense to you? I'd love to get the naysayer who says, Lars, if we could just say ban all the law-abiding folks in America from owning a pistol, well, then we'll stop the criminals who are using them illegally. I mean, let's count it up. Uh, in the case of these Kansas City thugs, they are two juvenile persons of color. I believe that they are both black Americans. They are juveniles, number one. So they are not allowed to purchase a gun. They're certainly not allowed to carry a gun. And they're certainly not allowed to shoot people with a gun. So you've got at least three different criminal acts going on there. How do you solve that problem? Take the guns away from criminals. If somebody is carrying a gun illegally, go after it. And I want to remind you, because I've, I've been kind of shocked by the number of people who've forgotten about this, it was one of the last major uh, programs of the Trump administration four years ago, just about this time four years ago. A little boy by the name of Legend Tayafiro was shot to death in Kansas City. And what did Donald Trump do? Donald Trump was a guy from the business side of things. He believed in actually solving problems. Most politicians like Quentin Lucas don't. So he said, let's put the federal government to work. Let's send the U.S. Marshals and the FBI. We're going to send out federal resources, and we're going to arrest criminals, and we're going to take guns away from the criminals, not the law-abiding. So what happened as a result? In six months under Operation Legend, and if you don't believe me, do a keyword search, you will find all the history you want to read about Operation Legend. It happened in the last six months of Donald Trump's last term. And what did they get? They got more than 2,000 arrests of criminals, thugs. They got more than 2,600 guns off the street. They brought almost 500 murder charges. They seized millions of dollars in ill-gotten criminal gains, they seized pounds and pounds and pounds of every kind of illegal drug on the planet. They made a big difference in six months. And guess what happened? When Joe Biden walked in, among the other things he did that were wrong, he took Operation Legend that took down criminals and guns and drugs and money, and he shut it down. He shut down Operation Legend if he had not. The gun that shot those people, the guns that shot those people in Kansas City, might not have been on the street, but Joe Biden canceled the program. In control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day. And back in my day in school, uh, President's Day was a rather big deal. We were taught about its importance in school, reminding us of our nation's history and the impact of past presidents. 
But has America lost sight of that significance? I thought we'd talk about it with our friend, Professor Nicholas Giordano, who's a professor of political science at Suffolk Community College and host of the PAS Report podcast. How are you doing, Professor? I'm doing well, Lars. Happy President's Day. Happy President's Day to you as well. Have you seen this crazy survey of 145 academics in which they rank uh, not George Washington, as number one, not even as number two, he comes in third to FDR, and Abraham Lincoln's at the top of the list, but they put Joe Biden up as the 14th best president in American history, and Donald Trump right at the bottom of the list altogether, even lower than Jimmy Carter. What what should we make of that? We call those fake academics that are using ideology as opposed to objective facts that exist out there. And when we look at Biden's administration, we see all the disasters that have cropped up. I mean, the world is much more unstable today than when he took office. The economy is much more unstable today than when he took office. As far as our inner cities, they are much worse off today than they are when he took office. And we've allowed six to nine million people cross over this border, many of them illegally. Uh, So, yeah, I would say that putting him as the 14th best president is a little too much. I mean, perhaps he goes a little bit above Benjamin Harrison, but not much. (laughs) And not by much. And putting Trump at the very end of the list, Professor, you know I'm a a fan of Donald Trump. I think he's a he was a great president, and he did a lot of good things for America. And yet he ends up at the very bottom of the pile? Well, that's where you see it's ideology. I mean, it's nothing but pure hatred as opposed to looking at the metrics of of what he accomplished when he was in office. And, And People may not like the personality, but he did have a lot of successes when it came to the economy, when it came to bringing back some of the jobs that were lost overseas, when it came to foreign policy and being one of a few presidents in modern times that didn't actually engage and start a new war. I mean, these were pretty big deals. If you look at the Abraham Accords, if it was any other president, they would have been up for a Nobel Peace Prize. Yet he got ignored. But the Middle East was the most stable that we've witnessed it. In, in my lifetime, certainly, but I could pretty much argue throughout a large part of history. Well, and in fact, Professor, one of the things I always bemoan, I mean, we don't know what would have happened, but if, if there had not, and I think there was cheating in the 2020 election, but if Donald Trump had continued on when he announced the Abraham Accords, he said, this is three, we have three or four more waiting in the wings to happen. And none of that has happened, nor does there seem to be much curiosity on the part of reporters to say to Joe Biden, well, we were told at the time of the Abraham Accords, there were three or four more possible deals to the point where the Middle East might actually become, if not unified, then at least a peace of some kind, where if the majority of the countries are moving in one direction, then those who choose to be the outliers, Iran, the Palestinians, etc., uh, then they realize it's time to either get on the train or get run over by it is what I was is the metaphor I would use to say this is this is where we're going to go. And once people start doing business with each other, even in the United States, I'm sure there was a time where if you lived in Alabama in the 30s or 40s, you'd say, I'll never do business with a black man. And there were people who were that bigoted. But I'll bet after some of your competitors start doing business that way and say, no, no, you know, I don't care what color the guy is. I don't care where he goes to church. What I care about is doing business. All of a sudden you realize I, I, I'm this, this is not going to look good in the long run. Not look good, but it's not going to bode well for me in the long term if I stick to these crazy, outdated notions. The Middle East could be the same kind of thing, couldn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, the fact is that if you look after World War II, we intertwined the economies of Europe and and globalization throughout the world, and there was actually less conflicts because of the intertwining of economies. Saudi Arabia was the big prize, but when President Biden came into office, the, the nearly the first day, he alienated Saudi Arabia. Now, had Saudi Arabia signed on to the Abraham Accords, it would have created a domino effect throughout the Middle East, given the, the royal family that exists and the way they trace their bloodlines back to their prophet Mohammed. So that would have been a huge deal, but but it was bungled by this administration, and it encapsulates it. But, you know, the the war on successful presidents is evident every single day, right? We, we see that there's this push by leftists to try and erase good presidents, and it's because they want to remake the future in their own image. And that's exactly what they want to do. You look at the way they rank President Biden. Well, look at his policies. He brought in the progressive agenda, and they support the progressive agenda. That's why they, they rank him so high in this uh, survey. Well, and in fact, when they rank FDR as number two to Abraham Lincoln, and I don't know, Professor, uh, I do know, I, I don't like FDR very much. And I know people say, well, he kept the country together and you know all that. No, as I understand it, he basically lengthened the Depression. Uh, World War II ended the Depression. Um, and FDR was, I think, even by the standards of the day, kind of a full-on running bigot. Uh, because he, uh, when Jesse Owens went off and showed up the the the, the uh, Germans uh, and Hitler, uh, did he come home to a welcome and an invitation to the White House? Nope, because FDR wouldn't 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 uh, have anything to do with it. And you think they don't remember that part of him? So what did he do other than create, you know, uh, to some extent, uh, government works programs uh, and and other elements of socialism that a lot of us don't like today? Well, I think you're right. I think that, one, is they go by name recognition. And a lot of even academics don't truly know exactly the presidency and what presidents have done in the past and their successful administrations in the past. Calvin Coolidge gets virtually no attention, yet he was one of the great presidents of the United States. And we see this time and time again. And we see this push to actually erase great presidents and the things that they have done throughout the, throughout history. I mean, at the... At campus reform, we reported how at the University of Wisconsin, they're trying to erase Abraham Lincoln as a, a way of pushing back against white supremacy and racism. It's like, well, wait a minute. Do you, you remember he was the one that actually engaged in a war to end slavery? And it's that idiocy that has prevailed in academia that exists today. Yeah, and in fact, that's probably why they didn't have much regard for Hoover. I like Hoover because Hoover had actually accomplished something in his own right uh, before he became president. He he, became, he got a mining degree. Uh, he went off and, and did mining operations all over the world, came up with some brilliant innovations uh, that still made it uh, that made a difference for a long time. I don't know that they still make a difference today. But by the time he arrived at the presidency, He'd actually had substantial accomplishments in the private sector. Who can you say that of today, of uh, of modern presidents? Jimmy Carter was a peanut farmer. You know, Bill Clinton had been a public employee almost his entire life. Um, you know, and and George Herbert Walker Bush uh, had been you know head of the CIA and a few other spots like that. But but what did they have in the way of great accomplishments until my favorite of the 21st century, Donald Trump? who actually had, you know, he had wealth, he had power, he had fame as a private citizen and decided to run for office. Okay. Uh, and, and other than that, Obama, Obama had been a student, wrote some books that were kind of crazy books to begin with. 
and uh, and then worked for the government and then became very, very wealthy. Yeah, well, that's the way it exists, right? The more success you have on the outside of government, the more they don't like you as president of the United States, whether it's Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, or, or Donald Trump. I mean, we see the same story play out. And, of course, it's those that have been in government their entire lives that never really contributed anything, because let's face it, bureaucrats rarely contribute to society, that end up getting all this praise and that are deemed great presidents, but it's far from true. You know, it's fun to, for me is, is as Biden runs, I'm going to get some Biden fans who call and I'll say, hey, can you tell me some major accomplishment he had in the United States Senate? Because basically the guy never had a job in the private sector. He came out of school. He ran for office. He gets into the car. He gets into the Senate. He stays in the Senate for 30 years and does nothing memorable. Then he's vice president and his crime family sets up a bunch of deals overseas, makes a lot of money that way. So he had that accomplishment. Not that I, I think you want to brag about that. And now he's become the doddering president that everybody thinks is a joke worldwide. That's Professor Nicholas Giordano. He's at Suffolk Community College, host of the PAS Report podcast. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Over the years, you've brought them into your... Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to tell you about something that's breaking just this afternoon. It comes from the state of Michigan. I know we got great people listening in the state of Michigan and WILS uh, and others. But the Office of Global Michigan, whatever that is, I haven't had time to look into it yet. But they are now asking that residents of the state of Michigan, my dad was from Allegan, Michigan, uh, that they want them to house what they call migrants. I call them illegal aliens because they're aliens, they're foreign nationals, and they're illegally in America. The Michigan Department of Labor and Economic Development says that residents who participate must make a 90-day commitment to these so-called migrants. As part of the Refugee Support Program, residents are asked to help with relocation needs due to the border crisis and make a home in the state. This is from Fox 2 out of Detroit. Residents are asked to meet the person or the family at the airport, help find housing, enroll children in school, and help them find employment for adults as part of the Welcome Corps. I'd like to talk to some of the Democrat progressives who are going to sign up for this kind of duty. I'm sure that the Democrat Party will probably say to some of their members, we got to have at least a few of you do this just to set a good example. But this is crazy. The Office of Global Michigan's goal is to make Michigan the home for opportunity for our immigrant, refugee, and ethnic communities, says Poppy Hernandez, who is Michigan's Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer, well, there's a worthless government job, and Director of the Office of Global Michigan. With expanded refugee resettlement pathways, everyday Michiganders can provide refuge and build a state where people are welcomed with open arms. Apparently, even people who've come into your country illegally. 
And when they got to the border and they were taken into custody and written a summons to show up in court years from now, and then they were given cash, a debit card, a free airline ticket anywhere you want to go, paid for by generous Americans who are never asked if they want to say or share that kind of largesse with people who've come into the country illegally. Other ways to help support an individual family, according to this crazy program out of Michigan. Cuban, Haitian, Nicaraguan, or Venezuelan nationals. Residents can also sponsor an individual or a family from Ukraine. Also available is the so-called Michigan's Ambassadors and Allies program to become an ambassador and share your sponsorship experience in the community, while allies and recruiters can support by welcoming, recruiting, volunteering, donating, or mentoring the refugees. The state of Michigan is also allowing its residents to make donations for housing, for legal services, for interpreter, for interpretation, and for education for K through 12 children. You know, I really want somebody in Michigan to tell me, is anybody going to take this seriously? And the second question I'd ask you, I understand we live in a very prosperous country. God has smiled on this country in ways we can't even begin to appreciate. We have abundant resources. We have a lot of land. We have largely, or until recently, we have peaceful cities. We have a good court system, or it used to be. We have good police systems, or they used to be. Uh, we have politicians who actually run for public office and at least in theory serve the needs of the people in their community. And now you've got the state of Michigan saying, hey, let's welcome some people into our country who've decided to come in illegally. Now, I'd ask you this. Think about this for a moment. There are parts of America where I'm sure there is abundant housing, but a, a huge number of places in America, housing is in short supply. That includes even prosperous states like California, I don't live in California, but I know the numbers. California is hundreds of thousands of units of housing short of meeting the needs of its own population. And you might ask, well, what about other resources? Do we have enough schools? Do we have enough teachers? Do we have enough hospitals? Do we have enough clinics? And do we have enough doctors and nurses and medical technicians to staff those jobs? And if we don't, what happens when you invite literally millions of people to come in. I think of it in kind of personal terms that if you said, Lars, if you had a friend and their house burned down, would you welcome that family to come and stay in your house? I said, I would. For a, for a friend or a family we know, we would invite them to stay. But we would also say, you're here because you're legally here, you're working, you're supporting yourself, and we expect this to be a temporary situation. This business with 10 million illegal aliens in the last three years is not going to be temporary. These people are not going to leave very easily. Even with Donald Trump promising, and I believe he's serious about it, promising the biggest national deportation effort in American history. Even with that, even if you went to E-Verify, when it comes to jobs and other resources, it's going to be very difficult to get these people out of the country. And if you say, well, Lars, you can't ask them to leave, why they've come here. Yes, they have. They've come here illegally. And if you entered the United States illegally, unless the Congress changes the law, and they should not, there is no way to become 
a legal resident alien if you have entered the United States illegally. I can't tell you how many times I've asked lawyers who are immigration lawyers, if somebody enters the country illegally, can they legalize their status? And the answer is sure. They need to hop on a plane, go back to their home, and then apply at the U.S. Embassy to enter. And then they can wait in line with all the other people who've applied to be American residents, green card holders. We grant about a million a year. I had a guy call the show the other night and say, Lawrence, why don't we just figure out how to cut the wait time down? It's currently about five to seven years that you wait to be able to get a green card in America. I said, there's only one way to reduce the wait time, and that is to start taking in, instead of 1.1 or 1.2 million people a year, how about doubling that to 2.5 million? Are you in favor of that? And the minute somebody tells me, yeah, sure, why not? I said, do you want them to come to your community? Do you want them to compete with your son and daughter for the housing they need, for the schooling they need for their kids, for the hospital services at your already overburdened hospitals, and tell the hospital, you're just going to have to take a whole lot more uh, non-paying patients. And if you're not willing to do that, what exactly are you going to do with all these people? And what you're going to see on a small scale is what we're already seeing on a large scale in New York City, a city that is now telling its own residents, all these people that just showed up and they're not here legally, We're going to spend some of the resources we would otherwise spend to provide you with service, New Yorkers, and we're going to spend it on them instead. And you and your family and your kids and everybody else is going to have to come second after we take care of these people. For a short-term basis, I could see doing it. If you had, say, uh, I don't know how this would happen, but say you had a massive earthquake in Canada, and we said, well, There are people in major cities who've had to evacuate. Can we put them up for a little while? You say, yes, with two caveats. Number one, we understand that it's temporary and they will go home. Number two, we have to make sure that this is going to be something where they intend to go back to their original country. In the case of these illegal aliens, I see no such intention at all. And now Michigan is going to start telling residents of Michigan, hey, Share your house. Share your job. Uh, if your kid is in a crowded classroom right now, it's going to get more clouded or crowded. Can you imagine how that's going to work out? Tell me some community that says we have so much excess housing. We have so much excess space. We have so many teachers who are just sitting around doing nothing. And uh, they'd really like to teach these kids. We have hospitals and clinics and groceries and everything else. No. I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't think the people of Michigan are foolish enough to sign up for that nonsense. Back in a moment, we'll talk about the Supreme Court deciding this year whether the government can limit social media platforms and their authority to remove user content. the work so you don't have to bringing the political heat he's Lars Larson 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day. So happy President's Day. Check out our uh, our uh, X poll. We used to call it Twitter poll. Now it's the X poll daily question that we put up and whether or not somebody who's not even allowed to vote in America should be on the Elections Commission in the city of San Francisco. Uh, I want to talk to Carl Zabo, though, for a moment, who's vice president of NetChoice and a professor of Internet law at George Mason University Scalia Law School. Carl, welcome back to the program. Yeah, glad to be back. So tell me about this decision. The Supreme Court is going to decide, if I understand, how much the government can limit, how much the social media platforms can remove user content. And here we're talking about things like terror speech, child grooming and pornography, although perhaps the devil's in the details if it goes beyond things like that. So what is it the Supreme Court's actually being asked to do? Yeah, great question. So it's President's Day, and what's one of the things we always think of when we think of the U.S. Constitution, it's the First Amendment. It is that protection from the government's ability to come in and tell you, tell me, tell any of us what we can say, what we can read, and what we can hear. And the cases before the U.S. Supreme Court on February 26th of NetChoice and CCIAB, uh, Paxton and uh, Moody will actually determine whether the government will have virtually unlimited authority to control what we hear, say, or uh, see online. That's what's at stake before the U.S. Supreme Court. And as you alluded to, this is because of two laws, one in Florida and one in Texas. And they were created because of concerns about social media removal of conservative speech. Look, I'm a registered Republican. I'm worried about that, too. But I do not want any government, left, right or center, coming in and telling you or me what is best for our users and our customers, what we can do in our own homes, what we can do in our own businesses. And that's what is at stake, because the states of Florida and Texas said to online websites, no, you do not have the right to decide what content is appropriate for your users. No, you don't have the right to remove political speech, even if it is pro-Nazi, even if it is pro-terrorist, even if it is uh, really horrible content. You do not have that right. The government will deny you the right to decide what is posted in your place of business. Uh, Carl, this is really thorny, and I'll tell you, I mean, uh, and you tell me if I'm just confused about this. On one hand, you've got most of these social media outfits are uh, beneficiaries of Section 230 that says you've agreed to be a platform, therefore you publish what people want to, or you put on your platform what people want. This talk show, and I always use it as an example, is not a platform. It's a publication in the eyes of the law, meaning that I control what's on it. I also have to take responsibility. If you were to defame somebody, please don't, Carl. I know you. I know, yeah. I know that you know better. But if you defame somebody, I'm the one responsible for Carl's defamation of somebody. If you, uh, you know, for instance, it's a violation of, of federal law to threaten the life of a president of the United States. We work very carefully to make sure nobody ever does that. Uh, because that's one of the few places where I think the Second Amendment, uh, First Amendment can be overridden. And that is we've decided to say we're not going to let you threaten the lives of the president, vice president, their families, etc. So but if but if you're a platform and you say I'll publish anything, then you don't control whether it's conservative or liberal. On the other hand, 
it should be an easy call to say if you're engaging in child grooming, if you're engaging in child pornography, if you're engaging in, uh, I guess, um, coordinating terrorist activities, those are all violations of the law, whether they're on a platform or in any other venue. How do we split the difference there? Yeah, there, there's a lot to unpack. I'm glad you asked about Section 230. And Section 230 is actually needed because social media platforms want to remove content. They want to engage in their editorial discretion, and that's why Section 230 was created. The Section 230 is literally called the Good Samaritan Clause because they wanted websites to go out and remove truly awful content. Right. Nudity, for example, is protected by the First Amendment, but most of us don't necessarily want to see that. Uh, animal abuse, protected by the First Amendment. Most of us don't want to see that. So that's why Section 230 is created, to allow websites to use their editorial discretion without worry about getting sued. Now, the underlying question then is, well, they get this benefit, therefore they're government agents. Well, you know what? A lot of businesses get tax benefits. That doesn't make them government agents. So what you start to see is a really slippery slope here. And at the end of the day, it is the First Amendment, not Section 230, that allows websites and social media platforms to remove speech that they don't want. Now, as for well, but, but the, hold on, Carl. Uh, Maybe I'm oh, misunderstanding Section 230. Section 230 says if you agree to act as a platform, you put up whatever people put up. So we free you from the constraints of being sued for defamation or libel or those kinds of things. You won't get sued for that. That's the benefit you get granted by the government, the only entity that really grant that kind of protection. But in exchange, you act like a platform. You put what people, you know, if, if I want to post something on Twitter, uh, it has to go up. Should those social media companies that get that protection for acting like a platform get to act like a publisher and say, Lars, you put up a tweet uh, that we don't like. You're a conservative. You said something conservative. We took it down. Can they do that and still claim to be a platform under Section 230? Yeah, absolutely, because... They, these websites from day one do not go out and say anyone and everyone can come and use our platform. In fact, almost every single one of them forbids users under the age of 13. So a, a open for everybody experience would be like going to the mall or putting a, a mail in the mailbox. My 10 year old could do that. He cannot use X. He could not use Facebook. And so they have never held themselves out to be open to everyone and anyone. And getting on to the whether they can engage in editorial conduct, well, just look at X. X is essentially a manifestation of the political position of Elon Musk. And what is allowed on X is representative of him. What is allowed on Truth Social is representative of President Trump. What is allowed on something like Instagram is representative of the views and values of Meta. And at the end of the day, they do and have the right to remove content that they don't want. They do it all the time, whether it's spammy content, whether it is uh, terrorist recruitment content, whether it's just stuff they don't want. And just because you have limited liability for something 
does not immediately make you a government agent. Every single one of us in America has limited liability under the Good Samaritan laws we have in every single state. And that basically says if you see somebody suffering and you provide help and they get hurt while you provide help, you are not liable. Understood. That's Carl Zabo, who's vice president of NetChoice and a professor of Internet law at George Mason University. Professor, thanks very much. Back in a moment. The Lars Larson Show. What I Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to talk about Donald Trump and the case that was decided with the penalty that came down last week. A one-third of a billion-dollar fine against Donald Trump. A prohibition on Donald Trump doing any kind of business in the state of New York for the next three years. And most importantly, he will appeal this case. But to be able to appeal it, he has to post a bond. And the bond isn't the $350 million he was fined. It's $350 million plus. He has to post 120% of the amount he owes to cover interest and other costs. This is the argument that's made by the judge who did this. And if he does not post the money, he can't appeal. Now, I think if he appeals, I'm, not, I'm a non-lawyer, but I would say that Donald Trump has a very good uh, chance of getting that entire judgment reduced because the state of New York has decided to find Donald Trump in a way that almost nobody has ever been fined before. And if they adopt this kind of standard in the state of New York, there are an awful lot of businesses that are based in the state of New York. And if you say to all those businesses, have you ever overvalued or undervalued the real estate and other assets that you own in New York? It is likely something that virtually every business that operates in New York, not not to mention a lot of businesses around the rest of the country. Because you can imagine that an awful lot of people who are in business, when they go into the bank to borrow money, and the bank says, well, how much is your business worth right now? And you say, well, based on revenue and other things, we're probably worth this much. And they name a number. Now, it's up to the lender to decide whether or not you have told them the truth and whether or not they can trust that the assets you're putting up as collateral are enough to cover the loan if you decide to go south on the payments. All of the banks who did business with Donald Trump said they were perfectly happy with the arrangement they had with Donald Trump, that he borrowed money and he paid it back on time and in many cases ahead of time. But here's where it gets really, really complicated because there are truckers in America who see Donald Trump as a hero. I see him as a hero as well. They see him as the guy who brought about a lot of prosperity in America, and prosperity generally means more loads for truckers. But the truckers are talking about a boycott of New York, not just New York City, but New York State as well. Now, if you sneer at that kind of idea, I will give you, before this segment ends, I will give you a great example where the same kind of trucker boycott that happened just in the last three years 
actually turned an entire state around on an issue. And it was a very small issue, but it involved, again, the courts and the kind of punishment that was handed out. Let me get to that in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. We call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and I think it is every single day. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, that is perfectly okay. You're more than welcome. We'll put you right to the head of the line. You just have to bring your argument, a few facts, a little bit of logic, and a willingness to answer a couple of questions from me. Because if I disagree with you, I'm going to probably try to prove you wrong. So 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our poll on X today, should a non-citizen be in charge or even have a voice in running elections? San Francisco is so proud of itself that they believe that the appointment of Kelly Wong, who is a Chinese national, but she lives in the United States, she apparently lives here legally, I've had a few people ask if she's an illegal alien. She is. She does not appear to be. She came here about five years ago. She will be the first non-citizen appointed to the commission. So to put a point on it, you're putting somebody on the elections commission who can't vote in American elections. And San Francisco is just so proud of this. But not only is Kelly Wong a Chinese national and not an American citizen eligible to vote, but she's also an advocate for the illegal aliens in America to be able to vote. She is quoted over and over again saying that she wants to make sure that every single person in the United States without regard to their immigration status is able to vote. That is liberal code language for I want illegal aliens to vote in elections. She says she wants to enfranchise people and help non-citizens become citizens. By what? By voting in an election? which is if you register to vote and you're a non-citizen, you're committing a crime. If you cast a ballot and you're a non-citizen, you're committing a crime. So she wants to help people who are illegally in America commit some more crimes and then become citizens, if that makes sense to you. And if it does, you probably are voting Democrat this year. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. So, some American truckers are already saying publicly they want to stage a boycott of the state of New York. And why? They want to protest what is being done to Donald Trump. And they understand when it comes to over-the-top penalties for something that happens. So, let me give you this example. It comes from December of 2021. And it comes from a trucking company that wrote this up. About three years ago, there was a young man, Rogel Aguilera Maderos, and he was found guilty, 27 charges, four of negligent homicide, including assault, first-degree assault, all of this because of a gigantic wreck that happened on I-70 west of Denver. I've been on that freeway before. April of 2019, this young guy is traveling eastbound. He's headed toward Denver. And he made a bunch of rookie mistakes, according to all the news reports. He's heading down a hill. And when you're heading down a hill, do you take your truck out of gear? I'm a non-trucker. I know you don't take the truck out of gear because the engine will help slow you down, even if you don't have Jake brakes. He was fully loaded. He's going down the hill. He ends up taking it out of gear, so he's going to go faster. He ends up burning out his brakes. He's going to go faster. He ends up not taking one of those emergency exit ramps 
that is provided for trucks that have no brakes and are out of control. His crash, the crash, took four lives. So what did they give him? They gave him 110 years in prison. And the comparison is made to another Colorado, a teenager, who actually was drunk and driving and killed four people. What did Ethan Couch get? He got 10 years of probation. What did Aguilera Maderos get for the accident that also took four lives when his truck went out of control? He got 110 years in prison. Truck drivers thought that was wrong. They staged a boycott of Colorado. And within a month, the state had decided to go back and take another look at that sentence. They gave the truck driver clemency and then resentenced him to something that was appropriate, 10 years in prison. Now there are a lot of truckers saying they may they may actually boycott New York. Now, can you imagine a truck driver, especially an independent, can pick up loads anywhere he wants, drop them off anywhere he wants. He just takes the contract or he doesn't. Can you imagine if even a sizable number of truckers say, I can haul loads to a lot of places. I'm not hauling to New York. I'm not hauling from New York. And can you imagine the kind of chaos you could create, not just in the state of New York, but in New York City as well? That might actually get their attention, and I applaud the truckers for doing that. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. Last Friday, we got word that Alexei Navalny had died in an Arctic penal colony where he'd been sent by the Russian government. He was convicted, according to the Russians, of the crime of extremism. And I'm going to want to get an explanation of that. But I guess I wanted to talk about who this guy was, what it means, the fact that he was challenging uh, Vladimir Putin. He was one of Putin's biggest critics. Uh, but how much it actually seems to reflect some of the current situation in the United States. We'll get to that in a moment. George Beebe joins me now, former director of the CIA's Russia's, uh, Russia Analysis Department and former Russian advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, currently the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute. Uh, Mr. Beebe, welcome back. Hi, Lars. Thank you. So when they say that uh, Alexei Nav uh, Navalny, who died last Friday in this Arctic penal colony, was convicted and sentenced to 19 years for extremism, what does that mean? Well, uh, Russia has some fairly flexible definitions of what that means. I think it comes down to what the Kremlin decides it doesn't want to tolerate. <laughs> and Navalny, for, for a long time, has been 
in the opposition uh, to Putin. Uh, he started as a nationalist opponent, uh, arguing that uh, Putin was not doing enough to support Russian compatriots living outside of Russia proper and other parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, but then he, he uh, I think, evolved into someone that was pushing for greater freedom and democracy in Russia. And most recently, and what I think has really resonated with, with the Russian people, he's been a an anti-corruption crusader. And that's an issue that a lot of Russians are, are unhappy about, uh, of all political persuasions, Democrats, nationalists, moderates. Um, all of them are concerned that the Russian government is too corrupt, that the people at the top of the system are living off of uh, theft, essentially. Uh, and um, that's something that uh, Navalny really started hitting on in the past several years. And uh, it definitely had an impact. It resonated with the Russian people. Yeah. And in fact, uh, he didn't have uh, I've seen some public opinion polling from Russia to the extent that you can trust it. He wasn't he wasn't always popular with with the majority, but he certainly was raising issues that a lot of Russians did care about. No, that's right. I, I, I'm not sure that uh, anything close to a majority of Russians would have voted for Navalny to be president, but they certainly were concerned about the kinds of issues related to corruption that, that he was forcing the uh, the Putin government to contend with. Does this change things dramatically to have uh, Putin's number one uh, critic uh, now pass away? But, I mean, he'd been in prison for a, a bit, so... So I'm not sure that he was still or was he still seen as a leader of the of the opposition? Well, what he was trying to do was to lead from within prison. And he he had ways of getting messages out into the public, uh, onto the Internet, online. And, and certainly um, his organization uh, was able to help him do that. So he was having an ability uh, to say things despite his imprisonment. But obviously, um, being imprisoned under such onerous conditions really uh, put, put a dent in his ability to have impact. Um, now, how, uh, how will this affect the Russian opposition movement over time? It remains to be seen. Um, I think Navalny's hope was that his willingness to put himself at great personal risk, even to become a martyr, which he ultimately ended up doing, would rally people, inspire people, cause the Russian opposition to rally. Um, but whether that happens or not, we'll have to see. Certainly, the, the Putin administration is hoping that their treatment of Navalny will discourage other people from trying to follow in his footsteps. I'm talking to George Beebe from the Quincy Institute. So, George, feel free to call me crazy. But do you see uh, contrasts and comparisons between what's happening to political opponents in Russia and what seems to be happening to political opponents in America? Well, there's uh, there's a, a difference in scale, certainly. Um, nobody is is poisoning political opponents inside the United States or not sentencing yet. them to <laughs> years of hard labor under Siberian conditions. Um, but this notion that uh, the judicial system should be a political arm that is meant to suppress and, and cripple political opposition, that's something that has always been out of bounds in the United States. 
Uh, we've had an, a, a Bill of Rights. We've had an independent judiciary that made sure that our government could not turn law enforcement, could not turn uh, intelligence services or secret police into weapons against political opponents. And I think there's no question that that, that has eroded. Now, has it eroded to the point that it, that it uh, is approximate to what Russia is doing? No, I don't think so. No, and I, I wouldn't think, make that argument. And I certainly hope, yeah, I certainly hope that it doesn't. But the direction that things are going, I think no question it's disturbing. I mean, it's just when I see that uh, we see a year's worth of riots by the left uh, that leave us with billions of dollars of damage and people dead and people in the hospital from the Antifa BLM riots, and nothing much happens to them at all. We saw a riot at the Capitol building. Certainly crimes were committed. Property was destroyed. uh, Trespass was committed. Okay. But then we see these people locked up largely incommunicado without due process for a long time. And uh, it, it seems I, I just see echoes of the way that other, thir- you know, countries like Russia, Cuba, Venezuela and others treat their political opponents. If you're on the wrong side, you do anything. They're going to throw you in the jug for a long, long time. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's human nature. Um, that's uh, something that our founding fathers recognized wisely, that power corrupts and they built a system that was meant to mitigate against that tendency so that we had checks and balances, legal provisions that made it unlikely the government could abuse its power. Um, and those uh, those principles are not one and done. Those are things that we have to defend continually over the course of our, our country's development. We can't take them for granted. So I think these are very important things for people to keep in mind. And we can use what's going on in Russia as a warning what we don't want to see happen here. I mean, when I saw it, there was a report, and Matt Taibbi, I don't know the man personally, but he's, he seems to be a great journalist. He's kind of a liberal personally, but he, he writes this great report where he says the Five Eyes, the intelligence services, were put to work by the FBI to go out and follow 26 people who are associated with the Trump campaign back in either the winter of 2016 or maybe even earlier than that. And you think that begins to sound like what we hear about in foreign countries when they like Russia, where you say, oh, you're running against the power structure. OK, we're going to use the, you know, the FBI to go out. We'll find something, you know, like like Beria said, you know, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. We'll find something you've done, if not. And that that's how the whole Russia hoax got going. It seems as though we're headed that direction. Yeah. And I think Matt Taibbi is an example of someone who is not. Uh, a right-wing nationalist by a long shot. I think he would nope. describe himself as someone coming at this issue from the political left, but he believes deeply in civil liberties, in in protecting Americans, enforcing the Bill of Rights, making sure that no government uh, has the kind of ability uh, to abuse the legal system, to abuse our intelligence uh, capabilities for political purposes. Uh, these are extremely serious things. Um, and uh, I think um, Matt is to be commended for his courage in reporting on these things. Absolutely right. That's George Beebe from the Quincy Institute. George, thanks so much for the time. Back in just a moment. The Lars Larson Show.
Senator John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, that is, you disagree with my point of view, you're more than welcome. We'll put you right to the head of the list. You want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. Today the poll is... Should a non-citizen be a ma- who can't vote uh, be a member of a uh, voting commission? San Francisco has seen fit to put a non-citizen, a Chinese national, on a uh, elections commission in San Francisco, apparently for the first time in history, and decided, yep, we're going to have this young lady, Kelly Wong, making decisions about how elections are held, but no. She's not allowed to vote in those elections, although she is advocating for the voting rights of illegal aliens. So that kind of tells you where she's coming from other than China. Adam Angievsky joins me now, who's CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Adam, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Lars. Thanks for having me back. I would think that the last place we might be sending American tax dollars would be to China, which which is a country that has a lot of money and a lot of uh, muscle, uh, politically and economically, and to Russia, which is currently in the process of an invasion of Ukraine that the U.S. officially disapproves of. And yet we are sending them a lot of money? <laughs> well, yeah, when uh, Washington certainly sends a mixed message, when it uses on one hand, we rattle sabers, and then on the other hand, we write, our, write checks from our taxpayers. So since 2017, our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, in combination with U.S. Senator Joni Ernst and her staff, we quantified $1.3 billion flowed into the two adversarial nations, that's China and Russia, uh, over a five-year period. So you had, you had about $800 million flow into Russia and about $500 million flow into China. And look, we're, you know, all of it's borrowed against the national debt, so we're borrowing it on one hand to send to China, and then they're buying our national debt with the other hand. Now, can you give us an idea out of $1.3 billion, where's this money going? Because you detailed $490 million of U.S. grants and contracts. What kind of contracts do we have in, in communist China? Well, here's one that's particularly egregious. $6 million for tech support for our military for the development and distribution of command software, which delivers equipment and supplies anywhere where our military is deployed around the world. And this came after the DOD, Department of Defense Inspector General, warned the Pentagon about using Chinese IT companies on defense projects. Now, why are we so we're going to deliberately buy the software that tracks where all of our stuff is going from the communist Chinese who are infamous for finding new new and different ways, creative ways, to spy on us, like TikTok. But we're going to buy our software for supply chain to our U.S. military from the communist Chinese, rather than developing it here in America? Yeah, unbelievable. And here's something that's also pretty unbelievable. So when the U.S., when Turner exits the briefing at the U.S. House the other day and complains about Russia and the possibility of putting a nuclear-armed rocket into space... U.S. taxpayer dollars have put $55 million into their top rocket and space corporation in Russia. And this is uh, underneath our spacecraft and space station uh, program in concert with the Russians. But it's that same technology that would then launch the nuclear warhead. 
Now, this makes no sense at all, but there are also some goofy ones. I mean, the government spend, tends to spend uh, money on goofy things. I call them goofy things like gender equality. Now, I realize at the end of the day, it doesn't. It adds up to hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, not necessarily billions. But give us some examples of some of those. Well, so it goes right to the culture of, of misallocation of taxpayer resource resources and waste. And so some of the times these small expenditures tell you a lot more than about really what's going on. So for instance, at the State Department, $100,000 went on grants to promote gender equality through the exhibition of New Yorker magazine cartoons. <laughs> so that was a twofer for, uh, for our government. It supported the New Yorker magazine and then also pumped $100,000 into Chinese entities. And then, then you got, you know, my favorite, which is the surfer dancing diplomats. So, the, you know, the diplomats are at our State Department. They wanted a beach party with the top surfers. So they decided to organize a climate conference with those surfers. And right on tape, on their videos, we got our our, our swimsuit-clad diplomats dancing on the Chinese beaches, $25,000. See, and, and this is the thing, Adam. I happen to notice a story earlier today. It's not big enough to make, you know, kind of rise to the top. But it was about how New York City, which has now got a major crime problem, apparently their police department has a dance team. And if you think, oh, you mean this is a bunch of police officers who in their off-duty time uh, go out and, you know, have organized. I don't have a problem with that. You can organize whatever you want. But apparently the city of New York pays for this so that their police department can have a dance team. It kind of tells you, as you suggested about the federal government expenditures, that they're just not serious about anything. If their purpose was we need to provide a good defense of the United States. We need to provide the national government services that only government can promote. Why in the world do we have to pay $100,000 to show Chinese people uh, cartoons from the New Yorker magazine because it promotes gender equality? Yeah, and those are the silly things. Here's what's really troubling. So we were able to tie out with Senator Ernst's staff $2 million of U.S. taxpayer money into the Wuhan lab in China. And then as soon as we did that, the Government Accountability uh, office, they did a study. They said, well, wait a second, only 1.4 million of U.S. taxpayer dollars actually ended up there because certain grants were stopped, even though the work was completed. Okay. So at the same time, taxpayers pumped in $300,000 into Chinese scientist ethics training because <laughs> our National Institutes of Health recognized that Chinese scientists engaged in research misconduct, neglect of human subjects, and publication fraud. Well, now, hold on. Why is this our problem? In other words, if the Chinese have unethical scientists, uh, that's, that's a Chinese problem, isn't it? Any more than well, American scientists who are unethical is an American problem. Why are we trying to help them solve their ethics problems? especially considering the rather questionable ethics of the entire upper level of the Chinese Communist government. Yeah, well, we pumped in $70 million since 2008, Lars, into the Chinese equivalent of the Centers for Disease Control, the Chinese CDC, $70 million of our money. So it, it strikes us that we're using China and Chinese virus labs as our back office on gain of function. Well, and that's the crazy part of this, is when you talk about ethical decisions, about the time that Anthony Fauci and his bunch at CDC said they were told by Obama. I mean, it's one of the few things Obama did that I agreed with. He, they said, you can't do yep. this gain-of-function research in America. It's too damn dangerous. So they said, oh, 
Well, if the boss told us we can't do it here, we'll just do it outside the country. That doesn't sound like an ethical decision anyway, because if they told you it's too dangerous here, why wouldn't it be just as dangerous and maybe even more dangerous to share it with a, a, a communist opponent? Absolutely. And so now what you have is Senator Ernst, and this is a big victory for transparency, what I'm going to say next, into the National Defense Authorization Act, and this was passed in December and signed by the president. She tucked an amendment, and the amendment forces the Pentagon to do a look back over the course of the last 10 years. They've got 180 days to come up with this audit and disclose it to the American people how much U.S. defense dollars were pumped into Chinese entities, the Chinese Communist Party-owned entities, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, and any other foreign lab, uh, virus lab, across the entire world. This is a huge win for transparency. This is needed information. The American people need to know every detail of how our taxpayer dollars were used on viruses and to support the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely right. And the folks who won that victory, along with Senator Joni Ernst, Adam Andrzejewski, and OpenTheBooks.com. Back in a moment. Pete 66. Hey, Lars. Happy President's Day. You're listening to the Lars. words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm always glad to take your calls. And I'll get to those calls in just a moment. But a couple of things I want to mention on President's Day 2024. Um, first, I want to mention uh, the survey that was done that's being talked about. It's being reported uh, by a lot of news organizations, without them pointing out that the folks they surveyed were college professors. In other words, they're coming from a toxic liberal environment. But what's really stunning is they rank Pre- President Trump dead last among American presidents, below everybody. And where do they put Joe Biden? They put him at 14, and the poll of these liberal academics says that Joe Biden has been a better president of the United States than even Ronald Reagan, which I think is absolute lunacy. That guts the poll for me. Where did Obama come in? Number seven. So Joe Biden is only seven rankings behind Barack Obama, if that tells you anything. And again, President Trump comes in dead last in that poll. The second thing that I want to mention is this business about uh, putting somebody on elections, an elections commission. And this happened in San, San, uh, San Francisco, uh, that she, Kelly Wong, is an immigrant from Hong Kong, which means she has uh, Chinese citizenship, came to the United States about five years ago. She is the first non-citizen to be chosen for San Francisco's City Election Commission after voters elected to remove the citizenship requirement to serve on local boards and commissions about four years ago. Imagine that. A woman who is still a Chinese national, has been here five years, has not become a citizen, and who is serving on an elections commission overseeing elections when she herself cannot legally vote. But you find out everything you have to know about this subject when you take a look at this quote. And it is from Kelly Wong, 
Chinese national now on an American Elections Commission, I am deeply committed to ensuring that everyone, regardless of immigration status, has a seat at the table in shaping the future of our city. In other words, she wants illegal aliens to be able to vote. Because if you can be registered to vote and cast a ballot in America without regard to your immigration status, that means she wants illegal aliens to vote. And I think uh, Democrats are desperate to let illegals vote in this year's election. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that the DNC has decided the only thing that's going to bail out Democrats in a year like this, where they have a complete loser candidate in Joe Biden, and if they get rid of Joe Biden, they have an even bigger loser in Kamala Harris, and if they get rid of her somehow, and I don't know how politically they deal with that, but they have nobody left. I mean, Gavin Newsom would, you know, maybe run for president. But after the damage he's done in California, I don't see any way that he could become president of the United States. He couldn't exactly run on that track record. So the Democrats have their problems and they think that all these illegal aliens that Joe Biden has managed to bring into the country, more than 10 million in the last three years, just over three years now, more than 10 million people. And he wants them all to vote. And there are states like Arizona that have already told the public why you have to be a citizen to vote in Arizona. But if you come in and you say, I don't have proof of citizenship, just show us that you live in Arizona, they say, and we will sign you up, but you can only vote for president, senator, and U.S. House of Representatives. Well, that doesn't solve the problem now, does it? But it's very clearly their plan. They see a win in this election by simply importing enough illegal aliens across our border, even if it traffics children even if it kills a lot of people from fentanyl, even if it is in a violation of America's laws, they want those illegal aliens in the country. Let's go to Gary. Hey, Gary, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, I don't see why the Dems are not equally as upset with what they did to Trump as everybody else is. Or It's, it's so outrageous that they can take You're away talking your about the fine on nothing. Friday for basically yeah. putting them out of business, can't do business in New York, can't do business with any bank that even does business in New York, and they want him and to be even able to appeal the case, he's going to have to post a $450 million bond, but he's not allowed to borrow the money or get the money from any bank that does any business in New York, which pretty much is all the banks in the world. I mean, do Democrats think that they're going to be uh, immune from this type yes. of, of uh, yes. abuse? Yes, and Gary, this is probably the most disturbing thing about all of this. I say disturbing. It, it ought to make us crazy. Yeah. Because think about it this way. If you have a group of people who stage and organize a coordinated series of riots in American cities over the course of less than one year that does $3 billion damage, is connected to three dozen murders, it sends hundreds or thousands of people to the hospital, does all this damage, would you expect that serious consequences would come on the people who are directly involved and to those who organized it? Yeah, and the bigger issue, Lars, is that they can do the same thing to your house as they did to his business. Who says you own your house anymore? Because they can say, oh, well, uh, you, you voted for the wrong person, so we're going to just take your, your house for no well, apparent they, they, reason. They could. They could take Mar-a-Lago from Donald Trump. Now, what would have to happen is he would have to get to a point where he's lost the case, he loses the appeal, and I think he's going to win his appeal. 
And then they would have to say, now pay the money. Will Donald Trump be able to find a bank somewhere on planet Earth that will loan him the money or to sell some of those assets that he has? Since he has most of his net worth is in, uh, you know, properties. He has a golf club that's worth about 200, a, a country club that's worth about 200 million. I think Trump Tower is, is valued at about quarter billion. So if he sold the golf club in New York State and sold the Trump Tower, that would satisfy the debt. Assuming that Donald Trump wants to pay the fine, I don't assume that because I don't think he believes that he owes the money, nor do I. And what they've already said, Gary. Even bigger. Huh? Go ahead. Even bigger issue is they would love to stick him in prison and have the very same thing happen to him as happened to that Russian. And don't kid yourself that these people, the only difference would be is that half the country would be celebrating. Well, they they charged him with crimes, so I think if they had their druthers, you're right. They would put him in prison if they could. I don't think they're going to put him in prison. And when you say, well, hold on, don't the Democrats understand this could happen to them? Do you believe that Joe Biden and his Biden crime family legitimately earned $24 million? Of course not. And okay. the thing is, is of course, well, they don't hold on, so hold on, follow the thought through, the, Gary, follow the thought through. So the Biden crime family, which has got 24 million in ill-gotten gains, do you think any of them expect they will get any kind of treatment like Donald Trump has? Well, taking away one person's freedom is taking away everybody's freedom. I totally understand that. All I'm saying is, If you say this must be based on the idea that the Democrats think we can do it to him, but nobody can do it to us, so far the evidence is there that they can get away with murder. They could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not go to prison. Back in a moment. Glad to get your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. 